Hello and welcome to the HRO2 December issue. This is Jeannie Poole, the Editor-in-Chief. The first paper in this issue is titled Impact of Fixation Mechanism and Helix Retraction Status on Right Ventricular Lead Extraction by Dr. Marissa Frazier and colleagues from the Oregon Health Sciences University in Portland, Oregon. This is a novel retrospective study looking at the extractability of active versus passive fixation leads in 408 patients of whom 81%, or 331, had an active fixation lead. The active fixation cohort was further stratified into those with successfully retracted helixes, 55%, or failed helix retraction, 33%. The remaining 12% could not be characterized. Based upon six procedural extraction factors, the authors derived a technical extraction score, which was then compared between the two groups. The six factors included the following. Manual traction only, which received a score of zero. Use of a locking stylet was one point. Use of a lead extraction tool was one point. Use of more than one size of a tool was two points. And use of both a laser and a mechanical sheath was given two points. And use of a femoral axis tool was given three points. The authors find that the mean technical extraction score for active and passive leads were 2.4 and 3.6, respectively, with a p-value of less than 0.01. When the active fixation group was compared according to successful helix retraction, unsuccessful or could not be determined, there was no difference in the technical extraction score between the groups. Further comparisons were made between the groups for clinical and lead-related factors. The median dwell time for active helix retracted, passive and active helix non-retracted groups were 4, 5.5, and 7.1 years, respectively. The dwell time for an active fixation device with the helix able to be retracted was significantly less than in those where the helix could not be retracted, with a p-value less than 0.01. The type of lead in the active helix non-retracted group was dominantly ICD leads versus pacemaker leads. Another difference found that amongst the leads where the lead could be retracted, were being extracted primarily for infectious indications rather than lead failure indications. A non-parametric multivariate regression showed that the technical extraction score remains statistically different between the active helix retracted and passive fixation groups. Amongst the different extraction factors, manual traction was most prevalently used in the active helix retracted group. The score could be dichotomized as greater than 4 being the most difficult and 4 or less being less technical. On multivariate analysis, the active helix retracted group had a 60% lower odds of having a score greater than 4. Additionally, dwell time was associated with a risk of a higher score. Overall, extraction was highly successful and was 99% for active fixation helix retracted, 95% for active fixation non-retracted, and 95% for passive fixation. Major complications were similar across the three groups, with one heart block in a passive fixation lead and one hemothorax due to a left brachiocephalic vein tear in the active helix retracted group. The authors conclude that transvenous lead extraction of active fixation leads when helical retraction is achieved, is associated with fewer technical challenges compared with passive fixation RV lead extraction, or when, with an active fixation lead, the helix cannot be retracted.
The title of the next paper is Acute Performance of Stylet-Driven Leads for Left Bundle Branch Area Pacing, a Comparison with Luminous Leads by Dr. Oscar Kano and colleagues. This is a retrospective study from two high-volume centers, one in Spain and the other was the Geisinger Clinic in Pennsylvania. The authors report on a comparison of the experiences of implanting physicians who do conduction system pacing using luminless leads versus stylet-driven leads. Both institutions are early adopters of conduction system pacing with extensive experience. The use of one type or the other was at the discretion of the implanting physician. 925 total left bundle branch area pacing leads were performed. 655 were luminless and 270 were stylet-driven leads. This study was conducted between 2019 and 2023. Stylet-driven leads were available starting in 2021 at both centers. The physicians implanted the leads according to reported methods and their individual experiences. For the stylet-driven leads, the majority, or 80%, were the Biotronic Solia S60 lead, with the remainder being the Boston Scientific Longevity Plus or the Tendril 2088TC from Abbott, using the company's specific related sheaths. Implant success was defined as the presence of left bundle branch pacing, or left ventricular septal pacing criteria at the end of the procedure as defined in published literature. In terms of the baseline characteristics, patients implanted with luminless leads were more likely to have structural heart disease as well as a CRT indication for pacing. Also, the baseline QRS was significantly wider in comparison to the patients in the stylet-driven leads group. The implant success rate achieving left bundle branch area pacing was 92.3% of all patients. The success rate was 95.3% of patients with luminless leads and 85.1% with stylet-driven leads. The authors note that it took more turns to penetrate the septum with the luminless leads compared to the stylet-driven leads, although the number of attempts to implant was the same. A number of additional important comparisons are reported in the paper. I won't note all of them. However, left bundle branch area pacing lead pacing threshold was found to be significantly higher and lead impedance significantly lower for stylet-driven leads in comparison with luminless leads at implant. R-wave sensing was similar, but more patients with stylet-driven leads had a threshold above 1.5 volts at 0.5 milliseconds compared to the luminless leads. In terms of complications, septal perforation was higher with stylet-driven leads than luminless leads. One implant using the Solia S60 lead was complicated by helix entrapment in the interventricular septum. This required use of a locking stylet to extract the lead, and post-procedure echo showed new severe tricuspid insufficiency. In total, lead damage due to helix entrapment or distortion occurred in 4.4% of the stylet-driven leads, and in 0.5% of the luminless leads. Recognizing that there is a learning curve for conduction system pacing leads, the authors looked at just the most recent 100 cases of both lead type implants. They identified a higher acute implant success rate for luminless leads, 97%, versus stylet-driven leads, 86%. The percentage of patients achieving true left bundle branch block capture was similar. More complications occur with stylet-driven leads than luminless leads, but the findings were not statistically significant. The author's report followed for 16 months and that electrical parameters were stable in both groups. The authors conclude that in their study, 
luminless leads for left bundle branch area pacing had a higher implant success compared to stylet-driven leads. However, electrical parameters remained stable over time and were similar between the two lead types. And they also noted that complications in both groups decreased with more experience. The next paper comes from the Netherlands' first authors, Philippe Constant Wouters and colleagues. The title of the paper is Prognostic Implications of Invasive Hemodynamics During Cardiac Resignalization Therapy. Stroke Work Outperforms DP-DT-MAX. This is a study that looks at acute hemodynamics during CRT implantation in 82 patients. Specifically, the authors sought to determine which acute hemodynamic markers had the greatest association with long-term clinical improvement. Three academic centers participated in this study. CRT patients were prospectively included. The Strauss criteria was used to define left bundle branch block morphology. Each patient underwent invasive pressure volume loop measurements during implantation, and LVDP to DT max and left ventricular stroke work were determined at baseline and during biventricular pacing. The implanting physicians attempted to avoid anterior or posterior LV positions, and the lead implant site was determined by the best hemodynamic benefit or best QLV. The hemodynamic measurements involved baseline measurements in normal sinus rhythm before and after biventricular pacing and the repeated 30 seconds after initiation of pacing. There were 60 representative cardiac cycles that were averaged. The measurements were made using the electrodes selected for chronic pacing both at baseline and during pacing, and acute relative changes in either LVDP, DT max, and left ventricular stroke work were calculated. Standard Cox proportional hazards modeling was performed to examine the primary endpoint, which was 8-year all-cause mortality. The secondary endpoint was echocardiographic response, defined as 6-month LVN systolic volume reduction, equal to or greater than 15%. Amongst the 82 patients studied, 67% were male, and the mean cure restoration was 158 milliseconds. The median survival time was 72 months. The authors found that survival was better when left ventricular stroke work during biventricular pacing was equal to or greater than 4,400 milliliters per millimeter of mercury with a hazard ratio of 0.21, or when the delta left ventricular stroke work percent was equal to or greater than 10% with a hazard ratio of 0.22. In multivariate analysis, comparing continuous measures of acute delta LVDP to DT max percent and delta left ventricular stroke work percent, only the stroke work percent was found to be associated with the primary endpoint with a hazard ratio of 0.982 per percentage point on the eight-year mortality. Also, echo response to CRT was associated with left ventricular stroke work and the delta left ventricular stroke work percent, but not the LVDP DT max. The authors conclude that this is the first study to show an association between left ventricular stroke work and long-term clinical outcome. Specifically, they showed that a greater than or equal to 10% acute increase in left ventricular stroke work after CRT implant was associated with a four times greater survival benefit at eight years of follow-up that was independent of the baseline left ventricular stroke work or QRS duration, providing a mechanistic explanation for CRT response. The next paper is titled Safety and Effectiveness of the First Contact Force Ablation Catheter with a Flexible Tip by Dr. Debbie Nair and colleagues. This is the FDA IDE trial results for the Tactiflex SE catheter 
which is a next-generation radio frequency catheter which incorporates fiber optics-based contact force sensing technology in combination with a flexible laser-cut tip. This prospective non-randomized multicenter study was performed in 355 drug-refractory paroxysmal atrial fibrillation patients. All patients underwent pulmonary vein isolation and typical cable tricuspid isthmus ablation for atrial flutter indicated. The patients were enrolled from 37 sites worldwide. The follow-up was for one year, and results were presented both for intention to treat and as treated. The primary effectiveness endpoint was freedom from documented AFA flutter or atrial tachycardia lasting for greater than 30 seconds duration as documented by 12-lead ECG or any ambulatory ECG monitoring technology after the 90-day blanking period and through 12 months of follow-up. The performance goal was equal to or greater than 50% efficacy at one year. The primary effectiveness endpoint was met with 72.7% freedom from any atrial tachyarrhythmia at one year. For the as-treated analysis, the freedom from any atrial arrhythmia was 76.4%. There were three secondary effectiveness endpoints. The first was recurrence of symptomatic AF only, which was achieved in 76.4%. The second endpoint was limited to single ablation success only and was achieved in 71.5%. The third endpoint was AF recurrence off of antiarrhythmic drugs and was achieved in 64.7%. There were several primary effectiveness endpoint failures, and these included failure to achieve acute procedural success, an ablation in the left atrium using an ablation catheter other than Tactiflex SE, a repeat ablation procedure greater than 80 days after the initial procedure, and cardioversion after the blanking period or use of a new antiarrhythmic drug or an antiarrhythmic drug at a dose higher than a historical max dose. Procedure-related significant events were observed in 14 out of the 330 subjects, or 4.2%, meeting the primary safety endpoint. Five of these were related to vascular access. There were also three cases of cardiac tamponade and perforation. Two were managed with percutaneous approaches and one with surgical intervention. Another subject experienced an esophageal pericardial fistula and was treated surgically with full recovery. This appeared to have been due to excessive contact force and ablation duration beyond the IFU recommendations. There were two deaths in the study. One was due to a motorcycle accident, and the other was adjudicated as a primary infection as the cause of the death. The authors conclude that in this FDA IDE trial of the Tactiflex SE catheter, all safety and efficacy endpoints were met. The next paper is titled Strategies to Enhance Remote Monitoring Adherence Among Patients with Cardiovascular Implantable Electronic Devices from Thomas Rotterine and colleagues from multiple institutions. In this study, the authors identify strategies for supporting remote monitoring across the Veterans Healthcare Administration facilities. This quality improvement project was based on a partnership between the VHA National Cardiac Device Surveillance Program and the Measurement Science Quality Enhancement Research Initiative, or QUERY. All patients with CIEDs in the veteran's system are offered remote follow-up. All remote transmissions are reviewed centrally by trained readers who then alert the local facilities of findings that could be clinically relevant. These authors performed a 30- to 60-minute web-based survey of 10 questions, interviewing 27 nurses, med techs, and APPs at 26 veterans' facilities. This included 15,000 patients with implantable devices. 
Facilities chosen to implement the survey included facilities that were considered to be high-performing with greater than 90% adherence to their patients being on remote monitoring, between 70 to 89% adherence, and less than 70% adherence. The survey questions addressed remote monitoring adherence strategies, manufacturer resources, organizational characteristics, and workflows for optimizing adherence. The results showed that 69% of those requested to participate in the survey responded, representing 27 individuals interviewed. This included 12 nurses, 7 allied professionals, and 5 medical technicians. The primary findings were that 53.8% of those surveyed attested that remote monitoring adherence was extremely important, 34.6% felt it was very important, and 11.5% felt that this was important for improving patient outcomes. High-performing facilities prioritized consistent patient education about remote monitoring and evaluated non-adherence using dashboards and manufacturer websites. High-performing facilities also instituted clear standard operating procedures that defined staff responsibilities and facilitated efficient contact with non-adherent patients and then family members by phone and then by mail. Interestingly, clinicians based at high-performing facilities spent twice as many hours per week, 9.1 on average, compared to 4.5 on average, managing remote monitoring adherence compared to these other facilities. The author's key findings are that adherence to remote monitoring is essential for patients with cardiovascular implantable electronic devices to receive the evidence-based benefits of this Class 1 Level Evidence A Heart Rhythm Society recommendation. Second, facilities that had the highest proportion of patient adherence to remote monitoring prioritized consistent patient and caregiver education using dashboards to evaluate non-adherence. Next, high-performing facilities also used standard operating procedures to enhance staff effectiveness to improve adherence. And finally, high-performing facilities have a higher number of full-time staff equivalents to care for patients with CIEDs. The next paper is by Dr. Oriane Ernault and colleagues from the Netherlands. The title is MicroRNAs in Extracellular Vesicles Released from Epicardial Adipose Tissue Promote Arrhythmogenic Conduction Slowing. This is an interesting study that explores further the mechanism whereby epicardial adipose tissue slows conduction and promotes arrhythmias. The authors note that prior studies have shown that EAT depolarizes the resting membrane of cardiomyocytes, causing the slowing of conduction. But here they test their hypothesis that EAT slows conduction by secreting extracellular vesicles and their microRNA cargo. The authors collected epicardial adipose tissue and subcutaneous adipose tissue from patients with atrial fibrillation. Adipose tissue explants were incubated in culture medium and secretome was collected. The number of extracellular vesicles in the epicardial adipose tissue and the subcutaneous adipose tissue secretome were then measured by calibrated flow cytometry. The remainder of the specific steps of the procedure are summarized in the supplement to their paper. The author's key findings are as follows. First, extracellular vesicle concentration is higher in epicardial than in subcutaneous adipose tissue secretome. Epicardial adipose tissue secretome is rich in extracellular vesicles containing microRNAs predicted to regulate resting membrane potential. The microRNA candidates MIR13P and MIR133A3P 
were demonstrated to induce arrhythmogenic features when transfected into neonatal rat ventricular myocytes. The next three papers are brief reports. The first is titled Reducing Inappropriate and Unnecessary Implantable Cardioverter Defibrillator Therapy is Patient Confirmation via a Mobile Application the Solution by Dr. Alwyn Nordman and colleagues. The authors here in this paper explore a very novel idea. This is a purely conceptual paper. Their idea is that incorporation of an application that would allow patients to divert ICD shocks, similar to the concept used in wearable cardioverter defibrillators, would be useful. The authors propose to use a mobile application such as smartphone or smartwatch, which would be signaled from the patient's ICD prior to ATP or shock delivery. They also propose that plethysmography, such as what is in a smartwatch or built into the ICD itself, could further be incorporated into an algorithm to prevent shocks to a fully conscious patient. Given the very sophisticated detection and confirmation algorithms built into contemporary ICDs, the addition of a shock alarm alert may not be straightforward, but is certainly a very interesting concept. The next paper by Parash Pokharel and colleagues is called Mechanisms of Damage Related to ICD and Pacemaker Lead Interaction. This study explores the risk of lead-to-lead interaction with multiple ventricular leads, and specifically an RV lead placed into the hist or left bundle branch area position and the RV high-voltage lead as an approach to CRTD. The study was undertaken due to a clinical case of insulation lead failure after only 21 months of dwell time. The pacemaker lead was sent back to Medtronic for analysis. The authors summarized bench testing that then explored the relative sliding distance and contact force between the Medtronic 3830 Select Secure lead and the Sprint Quattril 6947 high voltage lead. The authors note that both leads have polyurethane insulation. The bench testing included repetitive sliding motion with the assumption that a slide cycle is equivalent to one heartbeat. The in vivo load conditions were unknown and therefore empirically chosen as the lowest controllable load. The key findings of this study are as follows. First, in vitro lead-lead interaction was able to produce damage to either or both pace, sense, and defibrillator leads, including a complete fracture of the conductor cables. Second, the authors cautioned that adequate distance needs to be maintained in the right ventricle to avoid lead-to-lead interaction when using the left bundle branch area pacing lead and a defibrillator lead. And then thirdly, if one lead is damaged, there is an increased likelihood of damage to another lead. Obviously, further research is necessary to learn more about the in vivo mechanisms of lead-to-lead interaction and the need for lead design optimization when using one lead for the left bundle branch area pacing and another in the right ventricle for the high-voltage lead. The next study is titled Preclinical Experience Using Four-Dimensional Intracardiac Echocardiography with Carto Integration by Dr. Shepel Doshi and colleagues. This is a study performed in a single porcine model. These authors report the feasibility of using the new New Vision NAV ultrasound catheter from Biosense Webster. The catheter has a mapping sensor for visualizing volumetric multiplane images, real-time ablation catheter tracking of 4D views on the mapping system. The authors report the ability to accurately visualize the intracardiac structures in a 360-degree rotation and multiplanar imaging with less catheter implementation than current catheters. The authors note that, of course, clinical experience is needed. The final paper is a research letter titled Ventricular Fibrillation and Ventricular Tachycardia Post-SARS-CoV-2 Targeted mRNA Viral Vector Vaccination by Dr. Ashish Kumar and colleagues. 
Here, the authors report on the number of cases of BTVF reported following receipt of the COVID vaccine. The study used the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, which is a passive reporting system database co-managed by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. It is not intended to imply causality, but to identify unexpected or unusual adverse events. The authors summarize their findings as follows. First, in the United States, a total of 516 VT or VF events were reported. This included 167 VF and 349 VT events. These were reported as an adverse event post-COVID mRNA vaccination. This time frame was from the beginning of the vaccination availability until May of 2023. The incidence of VFVT reported adverse events was 0.76 per 1 million vaccinations. The absolute number of VF and VT events were higher, equal to or greater than seven days post-vaccination and after the second dose. Well, this ends the December 2023 podcast. This also completes a full four years of the HRO2 journal. I would like to take this opportunity to thank all of the investigators who have submitted to HRO2 and our readers. I'll talk to you again in the new year for our January 2024 podcast. And as always, thank you so much for listening.